Hello everyone, and welcome back to The Furious Curious. This week, we have something very, very special. We're talking about the relationship between our stuff and our personal identities with Dr. Sam Gosling. Sam Gosling is a professor of psychology at the University of Texas, Austin. He did his doctoral work at the University of California, Berkeley, where his dissertation focused on personality in spotted hyenas. His current research focuses on the psychology of physical space, how personality is expressed in everyday context of daily life, and new methods for collecting data in the behavioral sciences. His approach is ecological emphasizing the importance of studying individuals in the context of their natural habitats. He is an elected fellow at the Association for Psychological Science and Society for Personality and Social Psychology, or SPSP for short. Dr. Gosling is a recipient of the American Psychological Association's Distinguished Scientific Award for Early Career Contribution, the Carol and Ed Diener Award for Personality Psychology, and SPSP's Award for Methodological Innovation. His book, Snoop, What Your Stuff Says About You, which we'll also discuss today, is based on the idea that we deliberately and inadvertently express our personalities in the environments in which we live and work. Clarivate, which is a global leader in providing trusted insights and analytics, have identified Sam as one of the most highly cited scientists in the world. Okay, let's dive in. All right, Sam. Well, thanks. Thanks for being on. Really appreciate this. Good to have you. Thanks for having me. Happy to chat with you about these ideas. Real quick background here. Ben and I, um, we wanted to talk about originally a talk about cars and and how cars could be a reflection of uh, identity. And we we were doing this research and we found your book, Snoop, what your stuff says about you, and how you can glean you know personality traits by by looking at people's possessions. Um, and that really kind of blew the whole topic wide open for us. It became way more than cars. It still just started with cars. It just started with cars. Uh, obviously, cars is one one thing maybe we can get into later. But uh, your book, which which came out a little bit ago, but to me, you know, and we'll get into it, but in this era of like target marketing and more individualized stuff, it seems like we have more customized stuff and more stuff than ever. So even though your book came out a, a little bit ago, it seems more, more relevant than ever. So uh, I think maybe what we could start with is um, but, you know, before we discuss the ideas behind your book and the insights, maybe tell us the background of this book, how it came to be. Yeah, I mean, it, it came from really a, a, an interesting place was when I first went to grad school, um, I was studying psychology. And, you know, uh, psychology is meant to be the study of behavior. But if you actually look at what psychologists do, they're not really studying behavior. And, and many people have pointed this out. They are studying people's self-reports of their behaviors, and they are uh, studying some kind of often kind of contrived experimental uh, representation of ordinary everyday behaviors. They're not mm -hmm. studying ordinary people in their everyday lives. And so, it, you know, it, it seemed kind of weird to call this a behavioral science based on that. Um, it was more like a sense of, you know, what people's theories of how they behave are or how they behave in weird circumstances. And so I began thinking about that and I began thinking, well, look, can we look for 
evidence of people's behaviors because it's very difficult to measure really people behaving in the real world because you know mm-hmm. you tend to interfere with what they're doing and there's all kinds of reasons why sure. that's difficult o- outside of installing a bunch of hidden cameras in someone's house <laughs> totally and and it, you know and of course that is what some people have done but it's very hard to kind of scale that approach and you know and and there are you know I'm, you know of, of course with people's permission i guess they wouldn't be hidden I, i'm you know th- i think that's not a bad approach to some of these things but the idea behind this was you know, just as maybe, you know, Sherlock Holmes looks for evidence of kind of criminal behaviors or other behaviors in people's spaces, I thought maybe we can look into people's spaces to look for evidence of their behaviors. You know, I came, came up with this idea of, you know, the person who has parking tickets strewn across their, you know, their bedroom floor or their dorm room floor, whatever it is, you know, you know, what does that say about them? You know, it says a number of things, you know, that they got the parking tickets, that they are not organized, that they haven't, you know, um, uh, uh, paid them off and so on. So, you know, I got this idea that, you know, there's certain elements, you know, in people's spaces that may allow you to make inferences about their everyday behaviors that are relevant to their personalities. And so based on that idea, I started uh, looking into people's spaces and we started doing, uh, you know, initially it was just a kind of a a class exercise I did in in a class I was teaching where we essentially went into people's spaces and looked around. And then once I got into those spaces, I realized, yeah, there is certainly evidence of people's behaviors in here. But in fact, there's much more going on psychologically too not just you know this sort of residue of behaviors but other things uh connecting people to the spaces in which they're dwelling uh, as well and and that kind of opened my eyes to the richness of these places i love the the sherlock holmes uh comparison because he it's an exercise in in um in deduction right right absolutely and that, and that and that's what's going on here now of course if you look at you know, having been around real people's places and really trying to make deductions, you realize, of course, how Sherlock Holmes is portrayed on the TVs is, you know, is completely unrealistic in terms of sure. the sorts of deductions he is making. But the principle is right. You know, the principle is correct. It does g- give you information about people. And the question is, can we as scientists um collect those pieces of residue and organize them in a way that is systematic enough to kind of make uh, uh, um, standardized um, inferences about the people who occupy those places. That's interesting. So before we get into some questions about, you know, private worlds and Maybe some unexpected discoveries that you that you found. You you talk about the Big Five framework. Can you can you tell us more about that? Like your Big Five framework approach to to all this? Yeah, sure. So what we we yeah. use is what's known as the Big Five or the Five Factor Model of Personality, and this is now kind of the most widely used and well accepted model of personality traits. So by traits, I mean kind of regularities in the way people think, feel, uh, and behave, um, and Many people now know the Big Five because it's kind of begun to creep into sort of broader consciousness, but lots of people know the MBTI or the Myers-Briggs. So you can imagine the Myers-Briggs or the MBTI and imagine that had been 
kind of constructed by um, psychological scientists. And and mm. then you, you know, if my, you know, Myers and Briggs were very, you know, thoughtful, intuitive people, but they didn't have the, the scientific and statistical tools that we now have. And, I, you know, had they taken a more uh, scientific approach, they, you know, in all likelihood would have ended up with something that looks very much like what we call the big five. So the Myers-Briggs says there are essentially four dimensions along which you can uh, differentiate people. And the big five says, of course, that there are these sort of five broad dimensions. And so these are very broad dimensions. And it says that kind of most of the ways that people differ can be classified very broadly in terms mm -hmm. of these broad dimensions. And the, and the, and the dimensions are uh, extroversion, um, agreeableness, conscientiousness, uh, neuroticism, and openness. Did I mention them all? I think I did. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, yeah. and so, and just sort of just broadly characterize them because I think it's, it's quite yeah. useful for, you know, the subsequent dis discussion. So yeah, yeah, extroversion is pretty much what we know it to be. So people who are extroverted, they're kind of outgoing, they're talkative, they tend to be more cheerful, they tend to be more energetic. They tend, they're the people who go to a party and come away from the party energized and you know ready to go to the next party whereas the introverts they can go to a party and they can kind of go through the motions of talking to people and so on but they don't come away from a party energized they come away exhausted from from it and need to go and rest somewhere so you know the introverts are, are reserved and quiet and prefer to spend time alone and so on so the idea is that everybody you know has a score somewhere along this extroversion uh, scale as they do all the other scales. The, the next one is agreeableness versus disagreeableness. You'll notice they all have two dimensions, just like extroversion and they're, introversion did. They're, they're essentially sliding scales. Like I, I think about it as like yeah. EQ. You're EQing a personality right. on these ah, sliding scales. That's it. Right. And, ev and everybody could have, yeah, and everybody does have a score on all five of them. Yeah. So you can think, yeah. And the agreeableness is really our, our people could have sort of kind, warm, sympathetic, trusting, trustworthy at one end of the poll from the people at the lower end of the poll who are more likely to be critical and direct uh, and, you know, less warm and sympathetic and so on. Uh, the next uh, dimension is what we call conscientiousness. It's a pretty bad label because it doesn't really convey what's going on. It's really people who, you know, are reliable, they're punctual, they're organized, they, you know, get things done on time, they don't run out of supplies, you know, they buy things before they run out, um, versus people at the uh, other end of the scale who tend to be late and scatterbrained and, you know, don't, are not so task oriented. The next dimension, again, has a very bad label because you know, it, it, it sounds so negative, but it's essentially uh, neuroticism versus emotional stability. So neurotic people are more prone to be anxious. They're bigger warriors. Um, they get uh, nervous and stressed out more easily versus people on the other end of the pole who are more calm. They are less frazzled, less stressed by things. Um, you can think of it like, you know, there are some... Uh, Essentially, you can think of it as a sensitivity to what might go wrong. So if pe there are people who mm. are constantly thinking about, oh, you know, well, what if, you know, what if the, you know, door doesn't close properly? You know, they're constantly thinking about what could go wrong. Um, those people would be high in neuroticism. The people low on it are less sensitive to that. Whereas 
you can think of extroversion a, a little bit as a sensitivity to the opportunities or the things that might go right. So those are two ways you can kind of, uh, ah. uh, 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 you know, discriminate extroversion versus uh, neuroticism. And then the, the, the first uh, and last I mentioned is what we call openness to new experiences. So this isn't openness to feelings. It's not openness to others, to openness to people. It's, it's really an intellectual thing. It's about openness to ideas. Are these people curious? Are they exploratory? Are they uh, more abstract thinkers? Are they more philosophical thinkers versus people who are more traditional, who are more uh, concrete um, you know, who, who don't find it so fun to kind of play with ideas. They prefer the known to the unknown. You can think of the, ex, the, the high openness person going into the restaurant. They'll open the menu and say, what's that? I've never heard of it. I'll have it. Bring it on. That's what I want to try. Whereas the person low on openness will normally say, I mean, I'm exaggerating here, of course. I'll have bit, my usual table and my usual meal at my usual Exactly. Meals. Give me the spaghetti. I know what I like, and I like what I know, and I know spaghetti. So, yeah, exactly. You know, uh, so it's it's those sort of broad outlets. Now, one one thing I want to say about this, and so this is personality traits. The Big Five captures traits, uh, and the reason we do that is because it's easy to measure because you can measure it pretty easily with these self-report and other report questionnaires, and that's why virtually all of personality psychology has has been done using traits and using the big five I, I also want to note however that that's only part of personality it's what some researchers uh, Dan McAdams is a great example of this as he's called the big five essentially the psychology of the stranger he said it's a good first mm. read on someone mm. you don't really know somebody deeply you know he, he you know he asks you know would you want to you know marry somebody on the basis of their big five. It's like, no, you wouldn't. You'd want to know much more about them. Right? Are they extroverted and agreeable? I mean, that's a start, but really to get to know what somebody's really like, you need to dig deeper. And you need to dig deeper into a couple of things. And he called his level two constructs are things like um, people's goals, their motives, their values. Mm. Uh, you know, what do they want to put those sorts of things. Uh, and, you know, which is a sort of a, you, you get a better sense of somebody if you know, you know, what is it that's important to them and, and, and uh, you know, what it is they want out of life and where it is they want to be and those sorts of things. You certainly know somebody better than. And then he goes, if you really want to know somebody, you get to know what's called their identity, which is essentially this kind of narrative sense of who they are. It's the story we tell about ourselves. It's mm. the it's saying how I became the person I am, you know, how I kind of tie together the events from my past to kind of tell a story that made me the person I am today with implications for the person I will be tomorrow and next week and in the years to come. So th those, I think, are also incredibly important parts of personality, and that, but they're just much harder to measure. And so they've really been neglected by our field there are some researchers who are looking at it but you know 90 percent of the field has been looking at personality traits that's interesting it seems also that certain personality traits are expressed based on context for example like i can be an introvert in certain com in certain contexts or an extrovert in certain contexts i i know the enneagram i know that's popular now you can express certain characteristics depending on who you're with or or what your situation is that is that a fair assessment 
It, it, yeah, it's a fair assessment, but but I wouldn't go so far with it. So, like, I mean, it, it is true that mm-hmm. you know some people are more extroverted, and there's been some research looking at this to look at people's a person's behavior. You can see that they might be, say, consistently more extroverted with the people they play volleyball with, and less extroverted with their housemates, and mediumly extroverted, you know, uh, in the school, and so on. You see, you can see those consistent individual differences. Mm. However, the average of those is very, reli- you know, they're, they're very reliable. They don't, they don't differ that much. You know, and I mean, you know, so for example, you know, people will often say, well, you know, uh, you know, I'm, you know, much more extroverted at a party than I am at a library. So yeah, yeah, of course, everybody. <laughs> sure. you know, so, so both the extrovert and the introvert will be more extroverted at the party than they are in the library. You know? mm-hmm. But still, the, you know, the extrovert will be, you know, on average, across situations, more extroverted than the introvert. Gotcha. It kind of reminds yeah. me, uh, there was a part in the book, and uh, I read it a while ago, so if I get this wrong, correct me, but there's a part in the book where you talk about um, – if you're if you're meeting someone or trying to build rapport with someone, mm-hmm. music is one of the best things you can talk about. It's more effective than mm. um, I think you said books, clothes, food, movies, etc. For for kind of getting that initial rapport going, which I thought was yeah, it's just such an interesting way to to look at it and such an interesting example. Yeah, that, and that's certainly true for kind of you know young adults at least, where where music is is becomes incredibly important and essentially sort of defines that period of their life for them. You know, they will on average continue to enjoy that type of music for the rest of their lives. So, you know, we all think that the music that was out when we were were young is the best music. (laughs) Right. Exactly. But, 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 you know, but, you know, fast forward 60 years and those guys are going to be, you know, sitting in their old old people's home, tell you know, telling the assistant to turn up the Cardi B, you know, you know, which you know, it'll be, it'll and be on the oldie station. Yeah, exactly. It'll be in the oldie station. Exactly. Uh, so that's you know what what will be happening. But the reason why, you know, uh, you know, there are a number of reasons why music is so important. But one of which right, is because it is associated with a whole suite of you know values and so on. Mm-hmm. So you know even you know, so, and, you know, it's typically associated with those, you know, that, that the, the associations with, say, country music are different from the associations, personality values and otherwise, from, say, the associations with punk rock. Uh, of course. Yeah, that makes sense. So it's, a, so it's a very quick way of essentially, you know, and and a lot of those things are, you know, stereotypes. But, but you know, we mm-hmm. use those, you know, those stereotypes about people from uh, from who like those types of music, both to learn about other people, but also we learn that's a good way of communicating. It's a very essentially efficient shorthand way of saying, hey, I'm into this suite of, you know, interests and activities and values. I see. You know, obviously, like we we want to uh, express a personality. Sometimes that's different than our actual personality. We can get into that in a, in a second. But um, how do we like? How do we? What are other attributes that we commu- want to communicate to others? Music, we said, is one of them. I'm assuming clothes is another. Like, what are some of the main yeah. 
mechanisms that we do to to communicate our identity or what we want to communicate as an identity to others. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're everywhere. I mean, I mean, I think it's important to understand that, you know, people are incredibly interested in learning about others. And, and, and that makes sense, right? It makes mm-hmm. sense because for virtually all of our history, other humans have been the biggest sources of threats and the biggest sources of opportunities. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, it's, inc- it's incredibly useful for us to understand what other people are like. Is this somebody I can trust? You know, is this somebody, you know, is this somebody who it would be good to form an alliance with or a partnership with or various other things? So is this somebody who I can rely upon? It's very important for us to be, to get that information. So Mm. we are incredibly sensitive to trying to sort of find where that information lies, which is why Mm. I think, people do have an intuition that people's homes are informative and indeed they are informative. So yeah, as I, as I mentioned in terms of the locations, they're, they're all over the place. So they are uh, play, music, as you mentioned, clothing, mm-hmm. as you mentioned, the people's spaces that I um, have looked at, but people also are taking opportunities to deliberately display those things to others. So in their social media profiles, in their, writing a signature at the bottom, you know, some quote of some favorite person of yours at the bottom of your email, um, putting a bumper sticker, um, you know, the, the type of bag you carry around. So we are constantly trying to both read other people, but also be read by other people as well. I see. Yeah, it makes sense that most of us want to be known. And it seems there's a lot of research that shows we're happier when we're when we're known and seen by others. I'm interested, though, on that note, especially in light of social media, Sam, like, is there a is there a distinction or a, a discrepancy even where, you know, let's say like my social media looks like this. Let's say I I portray myself as a Zen minimalist on social media, but mm-hmm. really I'm just, a, I'm a pack rat, you know, I pack stuff. I can't get rid mm-hmm. of stuff. Is there that kind of discrepancy where we communicate something that is actually perhaps maybe not true to our identity and we, we, we conceal that real, that true identity. Have you, have you seen something like that? I think, yeah, well, I think that certainly is certainly something that people think we do. So, you know, when, when mm-hmm. I'm giving uh, talks about this material, uh, we'll mm-hmm. typically ask audiences, hey, do you think people convey their real personalities on their social media profiles, or are they more actually conveying their real personalities? And typically, audiences are split down the middle on that. So there's mm-hmm. about sort of 50-50 guess. Um, and what we have done, so we did some research, and, you know, it, it's possible that it doesn't generalize to other uh, media like you know TikTok and Instagram, or whatever. But we we did a lot of research on Facebook when that was uh, when that was very popular. And what we did was we uh, measured the personalities um, of people with Facebook profiles, and then we showed these Facebook profiles to strangers and said, "Okay, tell us what you think this person is like. What do you think uh, is the personality of this oh, Facebook profile owner?" Uh, and then, but we also did something uh, different here. We also asked the Facebook profile owners, say, not only would we like to know about your real personality, we'd like to know about your ideal personality, how you'd really mm. like to be. 
And that way we could say, well, do these impressions of strangers who scroll through your Facebook profiles, do those converge more with how you and your friends, people who know you well, really see you or your ideal self? And what we found was overwhelmingly, and we did this, you know, in uh, uh, multiple countries, we found that the impressions of strangers converged much more strongly with what people were really like, not their idealized selves. Now, you can take a number mm -hmm. of points away from that. So it could be that people were trying to convey their idealized selves, but just um, failed at doing it. But I, I don't think it's that because I think... You know, the, the social media profile, I mean, it's a network. And so it's not like just meeting a person, say, on a first date or at a job interview or something where you really can isolate the information about you. You can give a false impression in that short moment if you want to. You know, if you're an unreliable person, you can put all your effort into it and show up on time this one time or some or something like that. So the, the point is that it that if so, let, let, let's give an example let's say i wanted to give the impression that i was a you know a wild sensation seeking person with very kind of avant-garde taste and let's say i wasn't that way all right so well what would i need to do to you know to convey that impression impression in a, in a convincing way okay so you know i need photos of me you know uh, uh, parachuting skydiving uh, uh, photos of me maybe swimming with the sharks you know well okay <laughs> then I kind of have to do it then, you know, and, that, and if you're not really into that, how are you going to get those photos? Could you Photoshop them? Maybe I could, but then again, you know, all of the, the people who know me on my network will be clearly calling it out as a fake because they would know it's not true. But I want to give the impression that, you know, I'm, you know, I'm personally into the latest, you know, avant-garde Danish composers, but, you know, okay, well, how am I, if I'm really not into that, how am I going to talk about that in a compelling way, do I really have to go to those performances? And, and you know, so all of these, it's, it's something that's easy to say, oh, well, you just create a false impression. But when it comes to really doing that in a consistent and coherent way, if you're not that way, it's a much bigger challenge. And I, I think really the, mm -hmm. the reason people say that is that they say, well, you know, I only, you know, on maybe on my social media profiles, I just present the good side of me. And I, you know, I try to, uh, you know, present the positive aspects of my life or even play the positive side up a bit. And so that's where the idea is that people are creating a false impression. But I think, you know, we all know that. So we discount that. When we see only pictures of somebody happy on Facebook, we don't think they are only happy. We, we understand, okay, it's sort of, normative just to talk about this happy times just as in our ordinary everyday social interactions there are certain ways we won't behave and certain topics that might be true about us that we don't discuss just because that's normative not to talk about those things it doesn't mean we think that person isn't that way we just say oh well of course they haven't talked about those things that's not a very appropriate thing to talk about in you know in to an acquaintance so we learn, we learn to account. We learn to account mm. for, for that difference. Right. So it, it's like mm. the, mm -hmm. um, what, what you're saying is that it's, you, can, um, you can create a facade to a degree, but the facade can't, it's, it gets, the further it gets away from your actual self, the more difficult it becomes to, to build and maintain. 
Yeah, I think that's a good way. The further it gets from yourself and also, and kind of the longer uh, you have to maintain it and the more domains across which you have to maintain it, all of those things make it more difficult to, you know, keep that facade standing. And is that part of what makes looking at people's personal spaces so interesting? Because unlike, it seems like it would be an easier thing to do on Facebook, for example, but when you right. go into a person's home and you see where they live and where they work, then it's, it seems even, it would be even more, um, those spaces are really based on a person's, like you said, their psychology. So it seems like it would be, uh, you get a purer sense looking at those spaces versus someone's social media page. Is that? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, in some ways you might imagine it's more easy because you have kind of greater control over the whole space potentially. Yeah. But in fact, you know, I think there are a number of reasons that, um, you know, make it incredibly difficult to do that in a, in a compelling way. Hmm. Um, yeah. And I, you know, I, I think, you know, this, you know, it's probably helpful at this point to sort of talk about, you know, the mechanisms that link us to our spaces, because I think that really, yeah. you know, reveals why it is that it's, it's so difficult to create these impressions and why they offer so much information. Um, so, you know, we talk essentially about sort of three broad mechanisms linking people to their spaces. The first is what we call identity claims. So those are kind of deliberate mm -hmm. statements we make to others about our attitudes, our goals, our values. We're sort of broadcasting those to others. So that would be the same thing as wearing a T-shirt with your favorite band or your soccer team or whatever it is, or the bumper sticker on your cards. So these are saying, hey, world, I want you to know this ab about me. You know, and as I, as, um, I mentioned earlier, Britain, you, you picked up on this, is, you know, is you might think that, you know, people are constantly trying to create a false positive impression about themselves. Um, but the research has shown that that, that actually isn't as common as one might think it. And this mm. is work coming from uh, Bill Swan's lab and others, what he calls self-verification theory. And he's shown that time and time again, that people actually would rather be known than be seen positively. Um, so people mm. are happier, healthier, and more productive when they can bring others to see them as they see themselves. Because if, if I see myself as, say, a negative in a very negative light, but you keep on seeing me as positive, I feel you don't get me, you don't understand who I am. It's really difficult for us to kind of form a good relationship, and it makes me think our, our, our interactions are going to be unpredictable. It doesn't verify my sense of who I am. So although mm. I think, you know, there's an... There's a, a, an idea that we, you know, in popular culture, that we all want to be seen positively. In fact, much of the data suggests we actually want to be seen authentically uh, rather than po positively. So that's the first mm. mechanism which I've talked about, which is identity claims, deliberate statements about who we are. Um, the second is what I call thought and feeling regulators, which is where we might also do something to our space, but the goal is not to send a signal to others. If the goal is to make ourselves feel a certain way or to mm. think about a certain thing. So mm -hmm. it, it might be, you know, we play certain music to affect our mood. We might play relaxing music after a stressful day or exciting music if we're going to the gym. Um, we may put up photos of our loved ones. We may mm -hmm. have, uh, uh, I, you know, reminders of, of our 
important people or places or times. So if you know most, if you look at the sort of photo you have on your smartphone as the background, that is almost certainly some kind of thought or feeling regulator. It's, it's a picture of some person, some pet, some place, something that brings up a feeling or a thought in you. It's for you. It's not really necessarily for others because it's you who looks at that screen that screen all the time you know and that contrasts with the identity claim where the audience is other people you put something you know you put up a a, a sign in in the public living uh, you know an icon in the public living living space for others to see you have a poster of of you know of um Trump or Obama or whatever it is where you're deliberately conveying your values to others saying this is something about me and I want you to know it versus the thought and feeling regulators which is much more for myself. Of course when others come in they may see the thought and feeling regulators and think oh although that unconsciously although that person wasn't deliberately trying to send that signal to me I can see from the fact that they have created say a cozy solitary place to read a book even though it wasn't created for me i can see that they have created that space for them mm-hmm. and i can learn something about them and then the mm-hmm. third mechanism is is closer to the kind of the sherlock holmes process which which is what i called a uh, behavioral residue which is the idea that we engage wow. in many uh, many actions and a subset of those actions not all of them leave a material trace in their wake you have parking tickets scattered across the floor because of things you did uh but and so anyway so that's that's essentially i think why you know as you're saying ben why uh these physical spaces are so informative because they have created this space to deliberately tell other people things about themselves to genuinely create a space that they feel comfortable and a space that unconsciously reflects their behaviors and so as we you know as we go into those spaces we're not doing it kind of deliberately but we're intuitively picking up on those things and learning an awful lot about the person. Yeah, I remember you had mentioned the example of the family pictures and and a, a really clear way to express that distinction you're making is are they providing a psychological function to to me or am I putting them outward versus right. inward? And that's like a very clear way to say, like, I'm expressing something. This is an identity claim or versus this is something to help comfort me or reassure me. Right. right. The very same object, the very same object, the same photo. If it's on my desk facing me, then it's a thought and feeling regularity. It's for me to get comfort. If it's turned around and facing the people who might come in and saying, hey, everyone, look at me and my, you know. A successful family or whatever it is sure sure can it be could be a little bit of both right is that possible absolutely absolutely it could be both and and these all of these these are these are conceptual distinctions and in reality mm-hmm. they often merge so for you know take for example somebody may have a snowboard you know in their in their in their hallway or something like that so the snowboard really does is residue of their snowboarding sensation seeking behavior Mm-hmm. But they may all their decision to leave it out for people to see or, you know, not go to great efforts to hide it may also reflect an identity claim too. 
So mm. it, it, in re these are conceptual distinctions that often get kind of combined when you you know go down to the real physical objects in people's places. That's that's really something. I, I <laughs> you know I snowboard because I think snowboarding is cool. Therefore, <laughs> I think if you snowboard, you're cool. Therefore, I want people to know that I snowboard. So I <laughs> snowboard out. There you go. Thanks, everyone. That concludes part one of our conversation with Dr. Sam Gosling about our possessions and our identity and what our stuff says about us. Stay tuned for part two in two weeks as we dive deeper into some really interesting stuff you will not want to miss. You are listening to the Furious Curious podcast hosted and produced by me, Britton Rice, Ben Santoriello, Jody Duncan, Nicole Lazar, and Chase Domerg. A special thanks to Dr. Sam Gosling for joining us on this podcast today. And make sure you follow us on Instagram at the underscore furious underscore curious and subscribe to the Furious Curious podcast on your favorite platform. We also welcome your comments, your trollings, and your constructive feedback. Okay, until next time, stay curious. We're out. Mm -hmm.